Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop war games, and tabletop role-playing games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And joining me today, as always... My name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I desire the sweet release of sleep. Well, you can't have it. You just had bean juice. No, I've foiled myself. And today, our topic is not bean juice, or the sweet release of sleep, or why sleep is a really good spell to take in Dungeons & Dragons, but rather, getting started with miniatures. You know you want to. We're going to talk about a key element of the hobby, whether it be for tabletop role-playing games or tabletop war games, mostly tabletop war games. How do you get started with miniatures? Where do miniatures come from? What companies can you go to to buy miniatures? What are some of the things you might want when you are getting started in the hobby? Uh, what are scales? What's 28 millimeter scale? Um, well, what's 40 millimeter scale? I can tell you where where minis come from. It starts when one game developer loves a publisher very, very much. Yeah, um, we'll get into that a little bit in more detail but first we have a segment on this podcast called the week in hobby i'll go first i had my two eberron campaigns in the first one they are delving deep into a ancient hobgoblin fortress they came across a cave full of troglodytes and brutally slaughtered the troglodytes who were just living in their homes that's a genocide Yeah, Uh, they then came across a captured albino cave lizard and decided to make peace with it. Okay. Uh, Player characters, everybody. Um, They pushed further on. They entered into a deep deep section of the, uh, like, fortress. They found a jail cell. There was an attack by a roper. That was, you know, pretending to be a stalagmite. And a bunch of piercers that were still pretending to be stalagmites and dropping from the ceiling on them. Uh, that was more annoying than dangerous to them. For a second, I was wondering, I'm like, wait, how does a roper be a stalagmite? Or stalagmite? But then I remember they're kind of like triangular shaped. Yes, and if they and they have stony skin, and if they remain motionless in a cave, they, you know just are indistinguishable from a natural rock formation. It's only when they start shooting out the ropes and the eyes that you can, and opening up their eyes that you can tell what they are. Too many ropes and too Um, many eyes. Yeah. It did a good job of like yanking the people across the thing and they fell into the water briefly and had to be rescued. um, Which is good for them because where those caves go, no one knows. Uh, they found a key, a fancy key, and they are on their way back up to uh, put the key into the fancy door, which will allow them entrance into the main sanctum of the fortress, where the forge that they're looking for is, and also mind flayers. They may have forgotten about the intellect of ours that they saw earlier, but... Uh, there are mind flayers. Well, that tends Here, to happen. Here there be mind flayers. That tends to happen when you get your intellect devoured and you forget things. Yeah. Uh, the other group was delving into some dwarven ruins in a 
completely different part of the world, and also Mind Flayers. I was just using Mind Flayers. No, no reason. Um, they entered into an area, they found some Quagoths, which are kind of big furry things, um, Underdark Dwellers. In this case, those were being used by the Mind Flayers as muscle, and perhaps a light snack. Uh, there were also some intellect devourers, they fought the mind flayers, they panicked a little, despite the fact that at no point were they seriously likely to lose to the mind flayers. Um, the psychic, like, stun ability of mind flayers is actually fairly weak against a 11th level party. That's a big one. Uh, especially if you... Especially if you have a artificer in there who can use their flash of genius to like make anyone who rolls at least a ten pass instantly, um, which means you have at least fifty fifty odds as long as you don't have a negative intelligence modifier. And obviously, because the artificer has a like huge bonus to intelligence, and you know is gets intelligent saving throws, they are pretty much guaranteed to pass as well. So they weren't that in danger from the mind flares. Uh, they managed to beat them all up and explore this thing, and they found an ancient deactivated dwarven war golem, uh, which they did not investigate in depth, or else they would have realized that it could be piloted. <laughs> um, which is fine. Uh, the, 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 that was a thing that they chose not to do, so whatever. Also, none of them would fit, because you have to be dwarf-sized. Um, they did find a dwarf artificer who was working for the bad guys and had found the, like, door that they needed to get through and, um, was protecting himself from the mind flayers with a glyph of warding that one of the party members walked directly across. Oops. Explosive runes! Uh, the Artificer also had a had Bashira's Beholder Crown, which is an Eberron-specific item that basically gives you Beholder attacks, and used it to disintegrate one of the party members. <laughs> they, they died. I killed a player. Well, I killed a player character. Um... I did rule that the cleric using uh, Revivify on them because they were a um, Warforged brought them back, but brought them back at zero hit points, and they had to start making death saving throws. Quick, I could put the pieces um, back together. Well, it's more like he found the core of the Warforged and like was able to use the Revivify spell to put the body, to like make a body for him, rather than... Yeah. He still lost every non-magical item he was carrying. Because Disintegrate. And then he failed a couple of death saving throws. Uh, partially due to getting hit by a fireball and partially due to just rolling poorly. Um, and was basically out the entire combat while the rest of the party fought this evil dwarf artificer. It was good times. It was one of the more intense fights they've had in a while because... Uh, like, he was just a pretty solid match for them. But they defeated him. They figured out the puzzle on the door, which was, you know, your classic, like, rotating um, 
wheels kind of thing. Uh, and there had been clues scattered around the dungeon that they had to make sense of. They found the ancient shard of crystal imprisoning stuff that they were looking for. They made it, they teleported back to their ship. And there was a bad guy waiting for them on the ship who's like, hey, we need to have a chat. A reoccurring character that they've fought and talked to a few times before. So that's where they'll pick up next session. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, cliffhanger. Also, I did some painting. I did Hero Quest. I did generic fantasy miniatures that came from A Song of Ice and Fire. And I did uh, Dungeons and Dragons specific minis. So cranking out, cranking out some, fa- cranking out some miniatures painting, which is what we talk about today. Woo-hoo. But Ed, your weekend hobby. You mean my continuing weeks of not hobby? Still... Well, you're hobbying right now. Yeah, I guess that's true. Somehow it just it feels fake if I'm doing it on the show. Uh, still doing a lot of traveling around. Lots of long, shenanigan-filled days at work, so I haven't had a whole lot of spare time with energy to spare on doing hobby stuff, but right now I'm building the uh, new plastic tag for my Infinity Army. Uh, So far, the plastic seems superior to trying to build metal Infinity stuff. It's still kind of finicky. I'm having to use a lot of catalyst on the super glue to get everything to hold together and not just immediately fall apart. Um, They're using some kind of Restic, which is an interesting choice, but since... uh, Corvus mainly makes their stuff out of metal. Uh, I think the Restic is still something that they can make with the casting equipment that they already have for the plastic, or sorry, for the metal, and not have to shell out big bucks for uh, the steel molds that are used for hard ABS plastic. Um, So far, it's pretty good. It cleans up easy. It went together fairly easy. Um... They still need to work on like their fit process to make sure that everything like goes together and will stay together, but that's a whole other thing entirely. Um, I don't know if I would prefer an entire army made out of this. I feel like it's too soft and uh, not as detailed as they're going to get with their metal just for the style that Infinity currently has. Um, but it works for the large robots, so that's at least a plus. Yeah, more large robots, please. Yep. Um, haven't really done much else. I have a couple of projects that is, you know, once I'm actually able to do stuff, I would like to do. I'm cutting up an old uh, steel shelf to turn it into steel plates to use for my magnetized travel cases since I like to put magnets on everything and uh, trying to find a good uh, mat magnet has not been great. They're pretty weak. So I'd rather just have the rare earth magnets on the base and then have a metal thing to uh, get the stick to, but getting metal and yeah, getting metal like, custom cut and all that from like Home Depot or Lowe's is expensive and time consuming, but I have 
lots of tools. So I'm just going to do it myself because we have a shelf that we're not going to use anymore. And then um, as spooky season is approaching, I'm going to try to work on my Night of the Living Dead zombicide game that I got a couple years ago. I uh, just never got around to working on it till now, I guess. Um, I'm going to try and experiment in doing the entire thing in black and white to look like the movie. So it's probably going to be a combination of um, Zenithal highlight base coats with maybe some airbrushing to try and get like the highlights and the shadows in there. Or I'm just going to like prime it and do the Zenithal with the airbrush, maybe for a little bit more control and then try and brush in um, really bright white highlights and black ink shadows later on. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to do it. It may look like crap, but you never know until you try it out. Yep. And that's pretty much about it. And that has been the week in hobby. Yay. Yay. So today's main topic. Miniatures. Woo. And getting started with miniatures. Where do miniatures come from? Well, uh, now, yeah, a lot of times. Uh, but, well, for about as long as people have made things, they've made small, human-ish figures for kids to play with. There may have also been other reasons for making these miniatures, but this is a podcast about games and not about anthropology. Modern miniatures wargaming kind of kicked off in Prussia, now Germany, in the 18th century, initially using pieces borrowed from chess sets and basic boards, you know, sort of just colored squares. Uh, eventually, people started to use more detailed figures and rules representing specific units, weapons, soldiers, etc. And a hobby aspect was added, where people would buy and paint the toy soldiers that they were playing with. In 1913, H.G. Wells published the first rulebook for miniatures wargaming, called Little Wars. Uh, this did not really use dice. It was very much a... It, it was not a rulebook that we would sort of associate with being a solid set of rules now it's more of just kind uh, of like this is something that you can do with your your lead soldiers that's more than just your child moving them around in the yard yeah it was sort of an organized play kind of thing uh after world war ii the hobby started to grow with american and british community sort of establishing itself as creating detailed metal miniatures usually mail-ordered through hobby-specific magazines. Uh, in the 60s, 70s, TSR developed a medieval warfare game called Chainmail, uh, using metal miniatures, mostly made by a company known as, uh, what was it, Raspartha? Uh, Raspartha, and I believe yes. they are still around. Um, I think last I checked, they still have a lot of very old-school-looking miniatures, which I really dig the early 70s into 80s uh, hand-sculpted look. I love that. Yeah, they are a classic miniatures thing. Uh, if you watched Stranger Things and saw the miniatures they're using, this is where those... Uh, this is the company that would have been making those. Uh, the 
fantasy supplement for the chainmail game eventually morphed into Dungeons and Dragons. So now you know. And that's why Dungeons and Dragons uses miniatures. Most modern wargaming miniatures are in the heroic 28 millimeter scale, which theoretically it's that 28 millimeters or roughly one inch equals is about the height of the eyeline of the standard figure. It also so means you know, the... that your wrist is as thick as your neck. That is what the heroic tends to mean. Um, heroic is exaggerated to make the models easier to design and produce. Um, it's, it's more like Greek sculpture style of like, um, it's the, it's similar to the animation. It's similar to the animation principle of exaggeration, where if you try and animate something, uh, to emulate real life exactly, it may be so subtle that it may you may either not see it or it may not look right. So when you're animating, you have to exaggerate a lot of both movements and characteristics of characters um, to make them look ironically more natural. So it's kind of, it's kind of the same, uh, yeah, same process. And it also helps given how small the models are on the table to exaggerate them in sort of a heroic fashion so that they're easier to tell what's going on with them. Yep. Uh, not everyone is technically heroic scale. Some models try to be a little more realistic in terms of, like, scale of things. Uh, we'll talk about a few of those later. But uh, there are other scales available. There's 35 millimeter. There's 40 millimeter. Um, generally speaking, anything between the 28 to 35 millimeter scale looks okay on the table together. Um, although when you start to get the difference between 28 millimeter and 40 millimeter, it looks weird. Yeah. Um, um 20... they just don't quite fit at that point. Yeah. Like games workshop and D and D stuff. It looks weird alongside, uh, song of ice and fire. Cause song of ice and fire is made at 28 millimeter. So it kind of looks a little weird if you try and mix and match those two together. Hmm. I mean, they, I haven't noticed that so much, but I was thinking more like, um, uh, the Marvel Crisis Protocol. Oh, that's yeah. What, 40? Yeah, that's, um, uh, it's H. I think that's 40. It's HO scale, so I think it's a little bit bigger than 40. Um, yeah, uh, but they, that scale is just too big for any other miniatures that I can think of for the most part. Yeah, the Crisis Protocol thing is interesting because I don't think this is something that necessarily another company may have considered. Um, but because your Marvel stuff is going to be likely very urban, uh, urban based, that's where, you know, a lot of Marvel MCU stuff happens in New York City, is that they decided that because terrain is going to be hard to come by if they do 28 millimeter scale, they went with this kind of 40-ish scale because it matches the model railroading HO scale. And, you know, there's a ton of HO scale urban setting stuff that you can use for the game. So it was it's an interesting point of convenience that they went with since they could have just said, oh, yeah, we're doing our, you know, 30 scale 
crisis protocol stuff. And by the way, here's a bunch of buildings that you can buy for $100 pop. Yeah, it's essentially 18 to 35 looks okay on the table, especially if you're not looking too closely. Um, and I honestly find that most D&D miniatures work fairly well alongside Song of Ice and Fire guys, as long as you're not, like, getting too much into it. Um, although, in general, it's nicer to use one style of miniatures just together, if you can. Um, but yeah, once you get above 35 millimeter or below 28 millimeter, stuff falls off very quickly. Um, older metals tended to be made from metal. Sorry, older models tended to be made from metal, usually white metal, which was lead pewter or now just, uh, I don't know what it is now, but um, uh, probably a lot less lead. Yeah, it doesn't have as much lead. It has like tin, bismuth, um, a couple of other Basically, things. Basically, kind of a soft, softer metal that was fairly easy to mold into these. New model production is almost exclusively plastic. Uh, like we were mentioning, there are a few companies that do still make metal miniatures. Uh, usually, these are things that are done on smaller production runs. Yep. And even then, that's probably going to end up being phased out as 3D printing gets better. Um, and cheaper. Maybe. I think the the biggest issue that you're going to have with 3D printers and small-scale uh, operations is that unless you're making stuff on like a custom one-on-one -on -one basis, uh, it's still going to be a lot faster to cast something in white metal than to print it uh, on your 3D printer because unless you have a large printer and are, you know, really good at printing, you're generally going to be doing one model at a time. Whereas yeah, you can do a lot of metal, you know, all at once. I think there's probably a niche for commercial 3d printing that is going to kind of get eventually reduce the number of metal castings quite a bit. We're not there yet in any case. Um, so if you want to get started with miniatures, there's essentially two sides to this. And the first is buying the miniatures. And I'll talk about that in some detail. And the second is the hobby aspect to it, because there is a huge hobby element of the miniatures that you use in these games. While you can buy pre-painted models, most of the ones that you'll find and most of the ones we're gonna talk about are not pre-painted. They will require some assembly. They will require that you paint them and prime them. And if you want to make them look really good, there's some steps involved. There's some additional tools and additional skills that you might need. And we'll talk about that and some maybe some resources that you can use to get into that. But there are four sort of levels of model that you can get if you're looking to get into models. Uh, the first one is, like I said, pre-painted, pre-assembled, like completed models. For these, uh, WizKids makes a Dungeons & Dragons line of pre-painted, uh, pre-assembled plastic models. They're pretty good. Um, they could use maybe a little stronger quality control, but overall, if you just want models for your D&D game and don't want to spend time painting or dealing with hobby stuff, 
this is probably what you should get. Uh, they're, they're also good because they're, you know, generic enough that they can be used for pretty much any other fantasy game. If you want to start doing a fantasy skirmish game like Frostgrave or something, I have a pretty large selection of these. Uh, for science fiction games, you're a little less, uh, it's, it's a little harder. Um, you can get some Star Wars miniatures. Uh, the current ones that are pre-painted are typically from the Star Wars Imperial Assault game. Although there are also older, like, Hero Clicks and WizKids models as well. Um, and there are some pre-painted Starfinder miniatures, but not a lot. And those kind of have, like, a weird science fantasy vibe to them. Uh, yeah, pre-painted models for sci-fi, not, not that great of a, options. I mean, theoretically, you might be able to find the AT-34 models... But those went out of print in like 2005. So they are tough to come by. And I've taken all of mine out of the box. So you're not getting those. Uh, the next level is the slightly, slightly hobby level. And this is pre-assembled and pre-primed models that have not been painted. This is what I would recommend if you're just starting to dip your toe into... The hobby. I'll second and that that statement. Don't know where to look. Yeah, the Whiz Kids like Dungeons and Dragons pre-primed figures known as Nolzier's Marvelous Miniatures are a excellent starting point, and they make a ton of them from large dragons to beholders to packs of goblins to as many adventurers as they can like reliably come up with, so that if you need something for your D&D character, you can find a human female rogue or a male elf bard or this or that. And, you know, they're a good place to start. They're of reasonable quality. They are pre-primed, which takes a one of the big steps that you have to kind of learn out of it. And, you know, they're available in almost every hobby store I've been to in the last five years. And they're stupid cheap. They are stupid cheap. You can usually get them for five or six dollars. Yeah, I have a uh, Black Dragon model that I got and I think I paid fifteen dollars for that. If it was a GW miniature of that same dragon, I probably would have paid between seventy and eighty for that same model. Yes. And speaking of Games Workshop, the next category is unassembled, unprimed, just just unassembled models. DIY. This, this is the single most common type of wargaming miniatures. Uh, these are either on sprues, if they're plastic, uh, or they might come in like a little box or a bag that just contains the various bits. Um, these have to be cleaned, uh, assembled, glued primed and then painted and based if you want to put a base on them or not if you just want to like glue them to a piece of plastic uh this is also an area where there are so many production companies i'm gonna go through a few that uh cover i think a wide range of what you might look for the first one of course is games workshop boo <laughs> Games Workshop produces some finely crafted and incredibly overpriced models. That they do. 
they have tons of interesting detail and sculpts and designs for both science fiction and fantasy. They are, again, as I said, hilariously overpriced. Your best bet for science fiction is really some of the Necromunda boxes. Um, if you just want sort of science fiction models that can be used for other things. Um, your best bet for fantasy models is... Uh, I don't know, just look for their fantasy models. Their skeleton box set is actually really good for fantasy. For just generic fantasies. Um... I, I quite enjoyed the, like, box of a dozen skeletons that they sold. Uh, those I, those are fantastic. Uh, WizKids, the Dungeons & Dragons uh, publisher for models, has started to get into the market with a line of Frameworks boxes, which are overpriced under quality-ish. I'd agree with that. Um, essentially, they are the same models... As the Nosleer's Marvelous Miniatures, but not primed or assembled yet, and they cost more. Generally, they come it, with, like, a couple of different options of how you can assemble them, but not much. Yeah, it's it's sort of a early start thing, and I, they need to work on it a little. Um, Corvus Belly makes the Infinity line of miniatures, which are sort of sci-fi cyberpunk and are really cool-looking models. The bane of They're my sort existence. Of in the, they are tricky to put together. Do not start with mostly Infinity metal. for your first game. <laughs> Definitely do not start with them for your first game. They're mostly metal. They're tricky to put together. Uh, they're super highly detailed, um, which is great for people who are really interested in getting deep into the painting. Um... Their price point is not bad. It, it's it's reasonable. The prices are they're reasonable. Not... The biggest issue that I've had is sourcing them because they're based out of Spain. Um, generally, if you're buying them direct from the manufacturer, you have to pay ridiculous uh, continental shipping. And that's yeah the biggest problem that I'm running into. Yeah, I mean, there is a local store to us that carries them. And there is of course, always, of course, miniatures market. Uh, if you're in the U S which is a decent source of wargaming miniatures. Um, although their website could use a refresh. Uh, yeah. North star figures is an excellent source of metal and plastic generic fantasy and sci-fi. Uh, their boxes for Frostgrave and Stargrave are some of the most cost-efficient and interesting generic boxes. Uh, they're loaded with options and add-ons and weird heads and sci-fi guns and stuff. They do have a kind of distinctive, distinctive generic style. Uh, their stuff is kind of... Has a slightly lower level of detail than some of the other companies we've talked about. It's it's like mid range detail quality. I'd put it on par with maybe like Steamforge. Yeah, uh, well, Steamforge can vary dramatically depending on the like individual model. Also true. Or model line. Um, cool mini or not produces and distributes several games loaded with excellent models. Uh, the top two that I would say are Zombicide and A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, in both cases, these models are pre-assembled, 
but unpainted um, and highly detailed, but the plastic is a slightly lower quality, um, meaning that there's some issues with like just the quality of the miniatures is not great, even though the detail on them is generally quite high. Uh, Zombicide gives you perhaps the single best source for cheaply getting a whole supply of zombies for a modern game or a fantasy game if you buy the Black Plague uh, Zombicide or a sci-fi game if you buy the, like, quarantine something um, Zombicide game. And the Song of Ice and Fire ones, you know, is a sort of uh, low fantasy, uh, almost historical line of um, miniatures. And I, I have a box of those. They're quite nice. Uh, they're coherent and distinctive. But also, if you just kind of scrape the emblems off, they can be any fantasy thing and don't have to just be Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I'd say of all the stuff that I've worked on in the last few years, Song of Ice and Fire is probably one of my favorites, both from a uh, gameplay perspective and the minis, because they're they're pre-built, they're a reasonable price and quality, and they paint really fast. Yeah. Uh, Privateer Press makes some really cool-looking steampunk fantasy novels and some sci-fi ones for, with their War Machine Hordes line of games um these are mostly metal some plastic but again mostly metal very amazing super high detail high quality reasonable price point i i don't have any actual experience with their stuff uh again it uh, they're kind of a niche market and their models are very distinctive to the game that they are part of yeah i have a couple of minis for uh warma hordes and one for uh monster apocalypse they were a big deal a couple years ago but uh i don't know what happened but it seemed to just kind of drop off in terms of at least the local player base um i don't see many people playing it anymore yeah uh then we have mophidius uh, which makes a Skyrim game and a Fallout game, among others. Uh, so if you want your post-apocalyptic wasteland warriors, the Mophidius Skyrim models are, I believe, 35mm. Uh, but, you know, they make raiders, they make uh, survivors, they make death claws, anything you'd want in a good Fallout game, or just a general post-apocalyptic wasteland game. Uh, the scale is pretty good. The detail is okay. Uh, they're resin miniatures. So, like, the, you know, detail's okay. The assembly can be a little tricky. Um, some of the parts are maybe a little smaller than they should be for how they're set up. Uh, I haven't bought any of the Skyrim models, but they seem pretty solid. Just from style, uh, I, I just don't feel like Skyrim is something you actually need a game of. No, I feel like if I got those, it'd just be for having kind of generic looking fantasy dudes. And I definitely want to uh, take the Dovahkiin model and give him an arrow in the knee. 
that would be pretty sweet. Or yes. maybe one of the guards, because um, they made they made a set of white run guards too. Give one of those guys an arrow. Yeah, I think knee. that seems like something you should do. Uh, then we have Warlord Games, which publishes Bolt Action, which is perhaps the best single source for twenty eight mil scale World War Two models currently available on the market. Uh, if you want to get into historical games that use models. Bolt action is probably your best choice for like ones that are in the general hobby scale. Yeah, a lot of historical stuff trends more towards 15 millimeter or if kind of the further back in time you go, the smaller the scale gets because the the way the battles are fought, you know, it's it looks better if you have a little block of Napoleonic guys at six millimeter rather than, you know, a tiny block of like 15 Napoleonic dudes. It's like, yeah, this is an entire regiment. And you're just like, no, it's not. Yes. Um, and the last one I wanted to talk about was, Oh, God damn it. What's the name of them? Um, they make a million, they make giant sets of models and they do like a Kickstarter. Oh, Reaper. Reaper. Reaper miniatures. Uh, these are... They just do kind of um, everything. They do, yeah, they do just general everything, sort of generic, all models, all types. Um, their overall detail is a little lower than some of the others. Generally speaking, though, the price is real good. Um, the... And the, like models themselves are pretty solid and you know in generally the same scale uh they have a couple of different types of like sets there's classic dungeon ones there's a time traveling one there's sci-fi ones there's all sorts of things um they can occasionally be a little hard to find in stock in places because they tend to run through like a Kickstarter cycle and then the Kickstarter takes like two years to be delivered. Um, yeah, and I've also... But they're good minis. I've also noticed that uh, at least in our local stores, they've kind of been pushed out of the market by WizKids um, because the, yeah. new, the new WizKids stuff is kind of taking that same market of inexpensive pre-built minis which is generally where uh a lot of my reaper stuff was and pretty much everything at least at our local stores has switched over to WizKids, which is disappointing because you know WizKids, it's basically all D, D and pathfinder that's all you get whereas uh reaper was anything and had a lot more variety in what they would include. Yeah. Um, th I think Reaper, because they went to the Kickstarter model, they're more of a direct sales setup. Yeah, I can see that. So they're worth definitely looking into if you want something a little more specific. And I will say that their website has a very solid um, like figure finder system that allows you to specify like whether they're holding a weapon of some kind of type or wearing armor or shields or, you know, male or female or in a particular genre. Yeah, figure finder is really um, good. I use I use that a lot um, to uh, build my Frostgrave stuff. 
Yeah. And, you know, their miniatures are quite cheap for the most part. You're looking at like five or six dollars. And if you get the, or less. the Bones line of miniatures, they're like two to three dollars. Yeah. So, well worth checking out. And that's all I've got about, like... Oh, and the last type, the fourth variety of models, are 3D printable. Woo! You can find anything on the internet. There are too many companies making 3D printable model files to go into. Uh, though I will give a special mention out to Hero Forge, as they are a company that allows you to use their system to design your own models, which are they will then 3D print, or they'll give you a 3D print file for them. Uh, they're the only one that I've used. I've actually bought a couple of models from them, had them printed, and painted them. Uh, they're pretty nice. It's an interesting way to go if you need something very, very specific. And you don't think that any of the existing model companies are going to sell you a goblin with wings and a two-handed battle axe. You can make that on Hero Forge, but you're probably not going to find it anywhere else. Yeah, pretty much everyone and their grandmother at this point is running either a Kickstarter or a Tribes or a Patreon for 3D STL files. You could you can search 3D 3D print STLs and you will see nothing but ads for STL campaigns on your social media for weeks. Yes, and I think I'm going to be seeing those for the next couple of weeks. Probably. So, Ed the hobby side. All right, so I've been painting for about 22 years at this point. I generally feel like I know what I'm doing. Sometimes more on some days than others. Uh, but we talked about the different kinds of minis out there, the different types of games. And once you've picked your game of choice, we're going to assume that, you know, now you're trying to go play uh, like Kill Team at your local G-Dub store and you want to you want to get in like the bare minimum what do you need to start from zero and you know still have them uh, allow your team onto the table per the the GW standard so first thing you're going to need is you're going to need some kind of space and some kind of container to hold everything in could be a desk could be the kitchen table uh coffee table pretty much any surface that you can have that's about you know at least a couple feet by maybe one foot uh, and put down some newspaper or something like that. And you can kind of fit that all into like a little Sterilite container. That's how I painted for uh, a long time up until about 2014 when I got a dedicated desk that I can paint at. So once you got your space, uh, you're going to need some tools. First thing, probably paintbrush. Can't really do much without a paintbrush. Um, Pretty much any art store is going to be a good supply of paintbrushes, obviously, because it's an art store. Uh, you can get some at uh, your hobby stores. Um, there'll be GW paintbrushes, Army Painter paintbrushes. They're okay. Um, it is convenient that they're going to be in, you know, the same place that you're getting your other supplies or your miniatures. For what they are... They're of middling quality and likely overpriced because you're just paying for the name on the uh, brush handle. So if you can, I'd say go to an art store and look for um, some of the mid-range art brushes, not like the brand new student, but also not the super expensive ones. 
um, these ones will last you longer and you'll have better results and you're not going to be fighting with uh, a cheap branded paintbrush. Uh, for a long time, I painted with like a triple aught um, paintbrush or sometimes things even smaller like toothpicks. Um, the last several years, I've been convinced more and more that you actually don't need a gigantic paintbrush and a a reasonably small size will do. So you're looking for like a single aught uh, round brush. Um, if you can find one that is a synth, they call them synthetic hair brushes because they're not made with the mink fur um, that a lot of high quality paint brushes are made out of, but they're made out of um, an acrylic material that tries to emulate the kind of scaled structure that you get on your bristles for a natural hair paintbrush. Those generally tend to work pretty well in my experience. Um, if you get a fully synthetic paintbrush, after a while they tend to uh, start curling, the, the bristles, they get deformed, um, they can carry stains more than a natural hair bristle will, will um, but they're not going to be super expensive. So probably start out with just a single single aught round brush and maybe a one or a two sized uh, flat brush. And that's probably all you're really gonna need um, until you start doing big things like maybe terrain or large monsters or vehicles. You don't really need um, larger flat brushes or anything like that. So just a couple of those uh, will do you good. And then also, a just a couple of cheap hobby brushes you know you go to the crafts uh craft section of your local supermarket you'll see those white ones with the black bristles uh, this one doesn't even have a uh maker's stamp on it but they're like a couple of bucks for like three of them get some of those they're good to have um if you're trying to like dust anything off your model or if you have like adhesives or stuff that you're trying to spread around those are generally pretty good to have Yep, I go through so many of those. They're amazing. They just very rarely see paint. Um, actually, one thing you may want is a uh, makeup brush. If you go to the makeup aisle of, you know, said department store, get a cheap, uh, decently sized makeup brush. They're really good for doing dry brushing, uh, which you'll probably learn later on. And get like a little, maybe a little rubber mat to... Uh, clean them off with because they're hard to clean with just water. Um, but a makeup brush, good for dry brushing. Uh, maybe not necessarily required for getting started meeting the minimum GW paint standards, but, you know, they're useful. Um, those very cheap, like, hobby brushes that you bought at the supermarket also can be good for starting with dry brushing. Yeah, those work too. Um, it's just been so long since I used one of those that I completely forgot I ever used them for that purpose. Yeah, that that's what I would use when you're starting to dry brush and then switch to makeup brushes once you like, are trying to do larger scale stuff and have figured out what you're actually going for. Yep. And then um, you're going to need something to clean your brushes out with. Um, you can clean them out with uh, just water uh, if you rinse them out really good, but I find that something like the Master's brush cleaner and preserver. Um, it comes in a little cake and a plastic thing. You just get your brush wet, swirl it around in there. Um, it's really good for helping get 
a lot of stray paint particles out of your brush. Um, it'll help keep it from staining and it'll help keep the uh, bristles nice and springy. Um, so that's your brushes. Um, you're gonna need a container for some water because um, obviously you're gonna be doing a lot of brush cleaning. And then you're gonna need some kind of palette uh, for a long time. Um, I just used paint straight out of the pot, which is not great. Um, eventually I did start using an actual palette, like a Bob Ross style palette. Uh, it worked for a while, but it's hard to clean. It's big and bulky. Uh, but what you really want is a wet palette, which is a thing that you can buy um, at your art store. It's basically a little box with a sponge in it and you put down a piece of absorbent paper or uh, parchment paper is what I use. And when you put your paints down on that, the water absorbs from the sponge through the paper and into the paint, and it keeps it nice and workable uh, for a lot longer than it would be if you just had it on a, you know, a masonite palette where it's going to dry out really fast and you're going to be constantly adding in new paint, and new medium. Uh, so wet palette, it's a good thing to start out with. I wouldn't skip that. Um, if you don't want to buy one, you can make one pretty simply. Um, with pretty much anything that will hold water and has enough room for even just a regular kitchen sponge should do it. Throw some uh, small Tupperware containers. I think the best advice I've seen for making your own wet palette. Yeah, I think I used a Tupperware container before I got uh, my officially produced one. I've seen people make them out of like the plastic halves of the clamshell mini uh, containers. Yeah, but they're it's a good way to start. It'll make your painting journey a lot less frustrating. So you got your brushes, you got your painting surface, uh, you got your work area. Uh, now you need some paints. Uh, there's a lot of paint manufacturers out there. Um, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. I've seen a lot of people who are, you know, diehards of one brand over another. Um, I tend to use a combination of Games Workshop Citadel Paints, um, Vallejo, and uh, Army Painter. That, yeah, you can't really go wrong. Um, and uh, you, you can, actually. One thing to note is that you are not painting, uh, like, model cars or model planes. You do not want to buy Testor's model paint. That is true. Uh, that's actually that is what I started for miniatures. <laughs> so did I, because that's what was available in the nineties. Yeah. So it, or early two thousand. It's a it's a good it's a good time to get into miniature painting because there's just so much more out there that you know wasn't around when we were kids. Um, for somebody who's just starting out, I would recommend the Army Painter paints. Uh, they're of fairly good quality. They're inexpensive compared to uh, the Citadel color line. Um, their color range is pretty good. It's starting to expand more. Um, I think they're the main competition when it comes to paint with Games Workshop. So they're trying to make a lot more that are color matches for the branded Games Workshop ones. Um, what you get honestly kind of depends on what you're starting with um, as far as your game that you've, that you've picked out. Uh, say you're trying to do kill team with ultramarines. Um, 
the GW standard is three colors and some basing material. So, you know, you'd want to start off with something that's your bright blue, um, a yellow color for your uh, accents around the Space Marine, and then probably like just a black for, uh, I don't know, for the gun, for the base, anything that's not going to be those other two colors. Um, either way, if you're, you're just going to... If you're going to fantasy, I recommend you need a black, a white, uh, red, blue, yellow green and then like a silver metallic paint yeah go with go with what he said oh and i guess a i guess a brown too like a dirt brown yeah and then with that you'll have enough to do most generic fantasy people yeah and as you as you continue on and learn more and get new models and you decide you know hey i want this color your collection's obviously gonna grow um yeah, the, you put the paint in the box and then you come back and there's more paint and you don't know how it got there. So starting with Army Painter paints is a good a good spot. Um, the, the props that I will give to the GW paints is that they have a wide variety of hues and shades um, when it comes to the different colors. Um, I have one here that's Flash Gets Yellow and then Uriel Yellow, because Games Workshop uh, has to name everything for maximum copyright value. Uh, one of them is a very bright lemon orange, and then another one is, or sorry, a bright lemon yellow. And the other one has a little tint of orange to it. Um, and so, depending on what you're doing, if you don't want to mix that color yourself, or there's a potential that, you know, you may not be able to mix that color later. Uh, if you're using GW stuff, you can get a wide range of shades and hues that you aren't necessarily going to get with Army Painter. They tend to do um, fewer colors in general, um, but the Army Painter, they tend to be brighter, more pure colors. Citadel tends to be more muted to go with their overall grim dark tone. Um, speaking of tones, uh, there's also what Army Painter calls quick shades, which are inks. Uh, dark tone and soft tone are probably going to be the two best ones to get. One is black, one is brown, and the shade tones, you'll put them over a painted surface, and because they have a very low surface tension it's going to flow into all the low spots and it's really good for creating quick shades um, rather than you know mixing a dark and then painting it in the shadows um, you can just put the quick shade on there it'll do its thing and then you can dry brush over with a highlight color yeah um, i would recommend actually dark tone and flesh wash from army painter hmm. i don't think i've ever used the flesh wash it's it's like you said with the brown um, it's very good for flesh of all types, both human flesh and like monster flesh. And it also gives a very good sort of weathered, dirty look to items. Interesting. Um, it's one of my go-tos. Um, once you, once you get more, more experience and you start to experiment more, there's a lot of other paints out there. I've got, um, some multi-chrome paints from Turbo Dork, uh, some neon uh, metallic paints, uh, some technical paints that have interesting media uh, thrown in there. 
to create pretty much any kind of effect. Um, I've got some black ink that I use for doing shades on my comic book style stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, but really, if you're just starting out, all you need is uh, just some a basic collection of Army Painter stuff. Um, both companies do make stuff that, if it's GW, it's called... Um, uh, oh, I can't remember what the name of their quick paint is. Contrast paint. And with Army Painter, they call it uh, quick, sh uh, quick paint. Or no, speed paint. Um, they market those towards beginners, but I would not recommend them to a beginner. They take more skill to use. Um, and while they do put paint on a model, uh, it doesn't look great. Um, it's a very specific use type of item, and I wouldn't rely on it to start painting with. I used black contrast paint to paint that big black dragon model and it worked really well. Um, but I had to do some preparation to the model before I actually put it on there. So it's kind of misleading marketing in that case. Uh, let's see. I think that's pretty much everything. You got your models, you got your painting surfaces, you got your paints. Um, you probably will want some kind of medium to mix it into because the number one rule that you will see on every single forum is thin your paints. Uh, don't be like me and spend like 15 years painting straight out of the pot. Um, it, it'll look fine when you're just starting out, but when you want to improve your technique and get better at painting, you really do need to learn how to use various media to cut your paint with and, you know, alter its properties. Uh, the stuff that I use mainly is called GW Lamian Medium, which is just their acrylic media without any paint pigment in it. Um, it works pretty well. Um, it is expensive, and with a little bit of tinkering, I could probably get the same effect with just a semi-gloss medium from uh, an art store. But just starting out, just using some water is probably going to be good enough. Um, you can get... I was going to say, the thing I use is water. Yeah. Um, depending on what you're wanting to do, either water or medium can be your friend. Sometimes I'll use just water. Other times I'll use just medium. Sometimes I'll use medium and water together. Uh, it just kind of depends on what you're trying to do with your paint. But water is a good place to start. Um, if you have like a little eyedropper, that's a good way to count out your drops. Because um, you generally want kind of like a one-to-one -one ratio of water to paint. That's how I roll usually. I also have a little handheld spray bottle here that if I'm really gentle on the trigger, I can get like individual drops out of. Um, but thinning your paint, it's a good thing to start with just from the beginning. Don't don't be like me. Um, let's see. I think the last item that could be considered like a beginner necessity maybe would be like some kind of sand uh, baking soda, some kind of material to throw down on the base. Um, you can either mix it up with a little bit of white glue or put down some white glue or super glue on the base and then sprinkle it on there, uh, to give, you know, uh, either a gravel texture, sand texture, uh, grass, what have you. Um, I can't remember if GW requires base texture as part of their painting requirements for official events. Um, no idea. Yeah, there's... Uh, I will say that this is actually one of the 
re uh, places where the Games Workshop specific paints are actually quite good. They make um, specific basing paints. Uh, what do they call them? I think they call them technical paint. Texture. Citadel texture. There you go. Uh, and these are essentially a mixture of paint and some stuff with grit or cracking material or something in it that works for this that allows you to just using the cheap hobby brush essentially you just take it you slap it onto the base of your model and it's pretty much done yeah i have um one of them here it's called a ghrelin badland and the way it's formulated as it dries uh the aggregate in there will start to crack and pull apart so it gives you like a very good like cracked earth look and even even though I generally still paint over it with inks and stuff, it gives like a very good, like thick kind of uh, muddy texture. So yes, I have a bottle of Streeland Sterland Battlemire on my desk, which is a just mud. Yep, it's kind of a gritty mud. It's good. I use it on any outdoor fantasy stuff as like the base, and then I build what interesting features of the base are going to be on top of it. Yeah, so I think that's pretty much it. Everything else that I can think of is all uh, stuff that's nice to have, not necessarily stuff that is, you know, kind of your starting line for being in the hobby. Uh, the only other stuff I have to really say about getting started is that it is a process. It will take time to learn. Um, don't worry about ruining your miniatures. Um, there will always be more miniatures. And as a last resort, it is possible to strip the paint off and start all over. But I find in my experience that um, I, unless it's one that I had a, a really specific idea for and I just couldn't nail it and I want to try over, I will strip them, but it's uh, it rarely happens. And I find that I like to keep the stuff that I have painted in the past as a visual benchmark of, you know, where I was at a certain time, you wouldn't necessarily draw over an old illustration or, you know, throw it in the shredder. So. Uh, yeah, I will also say there are a million YouTube tutorials and like blogs explaining how to do these things. So if you're having a tough time with a project, see how someone else did it on YouTube. Yep. YouTube's a good resource. I, spend a lot of time there. I mean, I've been painting for over 20 years and I'm only just now learning how to do decent faces. And a lot of that comes from makeup tutorials because that's what makeup is. It's putting paint on your face. So there's a lot of resources out there more than there has ever been. So yeah, that's pretty much all I got as far as getting started. Uh, most important thing is just put put paint to minis and keep going. The rest will work itself out. Yeah. And so get started with miniatures. Go out right now and uh, buy or steal some miniatures or something. I don't know. For for uh, like five bucks, you can get some, uh, you can get some Reaper bones and then go to onepagerules.com and get their free rule sets. And you guys can be playing games tonight. You don't even have to start painting them. Yes, you could also, for like 20 bucks, go to your local game store and buy one of their Get Started Painting Kits, which typically, you know, comes with some paints, uh, model, and like brushes or something. And that 
is a, a good resource if you don't have any of that. And you can you can also go there and spend thirty dollars and buy a copy of Frostgrave Second Edition and give more money to our Lord and Savior Joseph McCullough. Yes, or you could just listen to this Stargrave episode or the Frostgrave episode of this podcast several times. Yeah, up to you, really. Or if you're somehow in the future listening to the Stargrave episode once we've played Stargrave and made stuff for Stargrave. Yes. Um, which, I mean, if you're in the future listening to that, tell us tell us things. Tell us what the future is like. I hope the nuclear fallout isn't too bad. Well, good thing global warming will be canceled out by nuclear winter. Is Central Asia still there? How is Padme? Is she all right? <laughs> no. I'm afraid in your rage you killed her. Yeah, I need to rewatch Star Wars, but maybe not the bad Star Wars. For me, there is no good Star Wars or bad Star Wars. There is just Star Wars. There's just wars among the stars. Yep. So, today's... Uh, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today, after that weird segue, let's talk about a Star Wars game. Woohoo! Specifically, Star Wars Rebellion. I want to play it so bad, and yet somehow I still haven't. I've played it. It's fun. It is one of the better, complicated two-player games available as board games right now. Uh, it's designed for two to four players, in which one side takes control of the Empire, and one side takes control of the Rebellion in Star Wars. And it plays out very similar and is, in fact, based on the 90s computer game Star Wars Rebellion. The best Star Wars computer game ever made. It was a very good Star Wars computer game. Um, essentially, it's somewhat asynchronous. The Empire wins by finding and destroying the Rebel base. And through a couple of other, like, victory conditions, the Rebels win by essentially scoring on a victory points tracker, which they score when they complete certain objectives, which are mostly held through cards that they don't have to show. So if they can get a major victory by blowing up a Death Star, that may earn them points. They'll play a card and earn points. If they can control all the worlds in a particular sector that will get them points and raise their score. So there's sort of a ticking clock mechanic where the Rebels are constantly going to be doing things to try and score them points, but at the same time, the Empire is constantly seeking out the Rebel home base and prepping to destroy it. Uh, it's got some simple dice mechanics for how ships and soldiers fight each other. It's got some cool little pieces to move around the board. A neat, like, board setup where you have the galaxy, like, laid out. Um, and a cool thing where you draw and acquire, like, commander cards that give you special abilities, but you can only have so many at any given time. Um, and in the four-player version, one of the features I really like is that each side has two players, and one of them is, like, the space commander, and one of them is the ground commander. And the sequence of events goes the empire goes uh, one of the empire players goes and then both rebel players goes go and then the other empire player goes so it's sort of a weird circular thing interesting yeah it provides the empire with sort of a chance to react but the rebels have a chance to get more done 
I mean, what is um, Empire but bureaucracy? Uh, fear. Fear will keep the systems in line. Fear of this battle station. Alright, now I know which one I'm watching. Um, and yeah, I would recommend Rebellion. It's got a higher technical level than a lot of the games we've talked about, but if you're looking for that, if you want a high technical skill two-player game that has a lot of replayability, Star Wars Rebellion. Plus, you get to quote Star Wars lines all the time, so what's what can be bad about that? Always good. And that's our podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Knoll Country or on Instagram at Knoll Country. Uh, I've been posting some stuff on both of those. Uh, you can see painting that's been done. Uh, many painting that's been done and so many more to come. Oh my god. Um, you can support your local game stores by buying miniatures and paints from them. You can do the things that Ed's about to tell you to do. Oh boy. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Adam Adness. I've been taking something of an uh, involuntary break from hobby stuff, so it'll come back at some point. Uh, you can give your cash to True Colors United to help the, uh, the queer kids. Give it to your local Reproductive Justice Fund. Give it to the Armenian Red Cross. Uh, don't talk to the cops. Uh, solidarity with the railroad unions. Uh, yeah, that's about all I got. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>